1: Quote a home and car bundle today at progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12 month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings
2: will vary. Hi, I'm Debbie Melman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. at canva.com, designed for work.
0: You know, when we're together and we're physically gathered, we have a real physical response to the proximity of bodies. Like, it's that simple. It's just the chemistry of togetherness. And that brings us happiness. And I think, you know, you add a beautiful meal to that, and you have yet an, an even an amplification of that.
3: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 16 years, Debbie has been talking with creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Debbie talks with Fanny Singer about her career writing about art and food, and about cooking in the time of coronavirus.
0: Part of why I've been so depressed in this time is I'm used to cooking for people like three or four times a week.
3: Here's Debbie, first with a couple of messages, then her interview with Fanny Singer.
2: I'm a native New Yorker, but since the beginning of the pandemic, I've been living in Los Angeles. I miss my hometown, but I love having more space, more sun, and a big garden. And almost nothing makes me happier than tending to the tomatoes and the foxglove and wildflowers while listening to hours of music. Sonos Move is the premium portable smart speaker, and it accompanies me wherever I go, indoors, outdoors, and even in my car. With an 11-hour battery, I can spend the entire day pulling weeds, planting seeds, and streaming tunes free and easy from Sonos Radio through the app. The design is world-class, and the sound is breathtaking. Sonos only works with experts in acoustics and engineering, and then collaborates with Oscar and Grammy-winning producers, mixers, and artists to ensure an unprecedented, state-of-the-art listening experience. If you want to know more about the best and this beautiful sound system in the entire world, please go to Sonos.com to learn more. Now I want to tell you about another podcast I think you'll like. How does an opera singer learn a new role? How does an actress find the perfect accent for her character? What does the director of a TV drama do all day? Those are the questions Roman Alam, Isaac Butler, and June Thomas put to creative people every week on working. Learn how writers outline novels, how composers get jobs and get paid, and how YouTube creators learn to look into the camera lens. Listen to Working from Slate every Sunday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And finally, a little personal ask from me. I love making design matters, and I'm always trying to make it better. One way to do that is to hear a little bit about you. If you have a few minutes, I'd be so grateful if you took a short survey about how you feel about the show at surveynerds.com slash designmatters. That's surveynerds.com slash designmatters. Thank you so much. Fanny Singer all but grew up in Chez Panisse, her mother Alice Waters' famous Berkeley restaurant. She went on to become a curator, co-founder of the design brand Permanent Collection, and a writer contributing to Art Forum and other magazines. But she's never strayed too far from Alice Waters' food. In 2015, she co-wrote a cookbook with her mother, and this year, she circled back to her childhood with a memoir and cookbook called Always Home, A Daughter's Recipes and Stories. She joins me from her home in Berkeley, California. Fanny
0: Singer, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you, Debbie. It's so nice to be here with you,
2: Fanny. I understand you have the same birthday as Julia
0: Child. I do, and Napoleon. I'm always yes. <laughs> I, I found the add. Julia Child one to be much more interesting. <laughs> but, but yes, no. And I actually, I you know, I remember being with Julia on at least one birthday one time in California when she was visiting. Um, she was a friend of my mom's, and obviously a kind of. Uh, mentor and a deep spiritual connection there. So it was always a special, yeah, a special birthday twin to have.
2: You are the only daughter of Alice Waters, farm-to-table pioneer, food activist, the Edible Schoolyard Project founder and creator of the legendary restaurant Chez Panisse and Steven Singer, the renowned winemaker, entrepreneur and artist. And I understand that you think you're the only kid in Berkeley, maybe the world, who has seen the movie The Baker's Wife more times than The Little Mermaid. Is that is that true? <laughs>
0: um, yeah, I think it, that's that's like definitely a safe assumption, um, assertion even. Uh, the Pagnol films that, uh, from which my name was also derived, were a kind of like amniotic fluid <laughs> for my mom. It was just it was the inspiration for she panisse. It was the inspiration for um, so much of the culture that she tried to develop at that restaurant, and um, and of course for so many of the names, um, my name. And then when my dad opened a bar right next door, it was called Cesar, which was also a name from the uh, Marseille trilogy, which is where my name comes from. But the baker's wife is a real favorite too. And definitely a movie that's been screened multiple times in this house and when I was little for sure. Although I wasn't deprived of Disney, I will say. I did I did get to to watch a lot of the films that my peers were watching.
2: You've written about how you don't really remember a time in your life before taste and a world that wasn't permeated by flavor. And I understand that breakfast was always an event in your household and that you were
0: a merciless porridge critic. In in what way? I just had really strong feelings even as a very young child about how it should be prepared and I, you know, it's like I had—I didn't like milk very much. My mom—this will probably surprise uh, a lot of people—but my mom had this dated notion around like the health of dairy products. It was coming from a, like a post-1950s like backlash against the like eggs and bacon kind of diet. That was like she maintained that like non-fat yogurt and non-fat milk were the healthiest things she could give me. But it meant that I hated milk because non-fat milk is terrible, like empirically. And it was, and yet it was the only milk that was, you know, sort of available in our in house. And so I kind of had already a very conflicted relationship to milk, but I still liked the way it added like a touch of creaminess to porridge. So there was like the cook in water and then at late stage addition of milk. And my dad was usually the preparer of porridge and he, uh, he was like batting me away from him. Like, no, now earned like too hot. You're boiling it. Um, <laughs> And I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure in general, I was just like a kind of nightmare as a kid because I had such, I mean, I was encouraged to have such uh, opinions and um, and to actually like look at my food and think about my food and what it tasted like in a, and be kind of discerning. So sometimes it went, I'm sure, too far in that direction. And then I was just like insufferable. I would, I am sure. That's well, uh,
2: you were born. You were born 13 years after your mother founded Chez Panisse. And when you were little, as your mother was testing recipes, I know she encouraged you to tell her when something was too salty or too bitter Mm. and to cultivate autonomy in your likes and your dislikes. And you've said that this gave you a sense of um, being able to implicitly trust your tongue and your nose from really Mm. early on. And I was wondering if there was anything that you particularly didn't like as you were growing up and refused to eat.
0: I mean, I speak at great length about my dislike of anchovies. Those were, they were just so pungent. And I, I, you know, I, I don't think I was, you know, a super taster, super sensor, whatever they're called that, you know, where it's like, they actually can't tolerate anything other than kind of bland food because it's everything that's outside of this margin is just like deeply offensive to them. Like I liked some crazy tastes and I liked things that were fermented and I like things that were really bitter. And I, but Anchovies just were like my bug bear when I was a kid. And then of course now I I adore anchovies. Like I could just have um, toast with anchovies for dinner and that would be like a perfect dinner for me, but, um, but there was a period that was actually like relatively long lasting. Cause even when I worked at Chez Panisse as a young teenager uh, in the salad department there, I was tortured by having to wash and prepare and fillet, you know, a can of anchovies, which went into almost like it seemed every dish at Chez Panisse because there was always the need to every single day deal with the disgusting, stinky canister of them. But. Um, But no, I was a pretty, I had Catholic tastes as a kid. I mean, it would just eat everything. Um, Fat on meat was one other thing that I was always sort of bristle at, um, but, you know, I was open and and my mom, I think also she was, she quite genuinely never said like, you have to eat that, you know, there was just not that kind of rhetoric of, of more like punitive relationship to eating or what's on my plate or not leaving leftovers or anything like that. So it was, it felt like she was, would actually be responsive to what my reaction was and take it in stride, which I think is what gave me. Like it also emboldened me um, and, and, and also gave me the sense of, like you said, autonomy.
2: You stated that you you believe you have an ultra sensitive nose, uh, so much mm-hmm. so that there were many instances <laughs> when your overactive sense of smell was such a source of parental grief that your dad used to compare you to the German shepherds who sniff out drugs at airports. When, when did you first become aware of this trait? Do you have a memory of first realizing that your nose was so super sensitive?
0: God, from the very beginning. I think it's why, you know, I have these taste memories is because I think the smell is really the dominant thing. Like I have this memory, this actual memory from when I was three of eating ice cream, but it's it's really, I think it was as much smell, you know, that those things, the way that smell and taste become um, interwoven enhances that memory. And I just, so I just remember smell being a part of most of my memories. And that to me is kind of an indication of how, um extensive or extensively developed that sense is that it is the dominant way that i have even decoded my entire you know childhood my my history and all these stories um but I, yeah, I just you know, my dad would take me to go um, smell and taste wine when I was really little, and there was a real emphasis on actually smelling things, you know. And I, one of the great things about this trip, actually, a couple of week, a couple of weeks, good God, what is time anymore? A couple of years I ago know. to a couple of years ago to Japan with my mom, was I realized there's a real culture of like smelling, like the tea before you steep it, or smelling some of the herbs that will go into a dish, and we kind of lost that in, in in America. Like we don't have that kind of almost reverential relationship for the raw ingredient. And then having multiple different sens- sensory experiences with it, like you smell it first and then you taste it. But that's actually what my child was like. It was like everything you'd smell first and you would know it in that state. And then you would have, you know, the experience of tasting it prepared however it was going to be prepared. Um, but even still, you know, my mom has this massive garden of roses in the back. Throughout this pandemic, they've been kind of I mean it's they've been gracing us with blooms. And every time one blooms, she's like, Smell it is the first thing. Not look at how beautiful this thing's like you have to smell this. And just, so it's it's a it's almost like a olfactory culture in this house.
2: One smell I know you love is the smell of a chicken roasting at high temperature. Um <laughs> But I, I couldn't help but um, connect that when you when you wrote about how when it's cooked in a kitchen without ample ventilation, it led to your coining of a word. i um, <laughs> wondering if you can share that word, both its meaning um, and
0: its spelling. Yes, it's, um, <laughs> it derives from the French. <laughs> it's um, to be pouleed. Um, So it's a poulet is the word for chicken in French. It's spelled P-O-U-L-E-T. So it's like to be pouleted. I think I spelled it. Just added an e d at the end, but it's yes. sort of essential. Like phonetically, it would be like p o o l a y e d. But that term came because for a time when I was um, in England doing my PhD, I lived in um, student quarters that um, ha- had a shared, really like perfunctory kitchen. Um, and I was going through a period where I was trying to be really rigorous about going to the library, and so sometimes if I um, if I was trying to prepare something for dinner before. so that I could stay at the library really late. And I remember I was going through this insane period of like roasting chickens at seven in the morning. And I set off a fire alarm in the entire building with one of these j- chickens. And I mean, everyone's in their pajamas. It's 7.15 in the morning. There's like, everyone's had to come into the courtyard and I was the culprit with this, like roasting a chicken at if you was like, are you insane? Like it was complete, you know, and I, maybe I am, but I'll do almost anything for a good roast chicken.
2: Did you end up having to feed the entire dorm that night?
0: I, there, I, I definitely passed around some cookies in the next few days. I felt pretty contrite. It was, uh, but I was, I was infuriating to everyone cause I was the only one who took seriously the using of that kitchen, you know? So I was like, it's me again, just uh, cooking a proper meal in here when you're trying to like make some ramen. So,
2: Well, you know. I am definitely uh, taking on that word uh, for when our kitchen <laughs> ventilation isn't quite what it needs to be and the smoke alarm goes off, which happens from time to time. There's, I live in a, a house few, with, a, with an avid cook as well. It's,
0: it's <laughs> a, very important. But there's a few I should, I should elaborate the uh, lexicon for you. There's also to be staked out if you cook a steak. Ah, <laughs> Okay, Good. And there's, um, you know, we've, you've gone fishing if you uh, really just cover yourself in the smell of fish. The reason Poulade was given this kind of French twist was because that, um, that episode in graduate school when I forced everyone out of their beds, uh, I was dating a French biologist. And so we would always talk about <laughs> getting Poulade. <laughs> okay.
2: It really, it, it has a nice ring to it. I like the <laughs> word very much. Um, when you were eight years old, Your mom published the first of two children's books themed around your experiences at Chape Nice titled Fanny in France, Travel Adventures of a Chef's Daughter with Recipes. And at the time... You thought uh, that being the heroine of a picture book was terrific, and you've written about how you didn't need to be coerced into tagging along with your mom to book signings and interviews. Um, And in March of this year, this very strange and surreal year, you published your first solo book titled Always Home, A Daughter's Recipes and Stories. How have these two experiences with... Uh, sharing the limelight with your mom uh, as an eight-year-old and now as an adult having your first book launched during a pandemic. How have they, how have
0: they differed for you? Massively. I mean, you know, when I was eight and Fanny at Chabonese first came out, I just, it was a very surreal experience. I just, I had no point of reference for that, you know, and I I thought it was, I I didn't really have much to do with it either. I was eight. So my mom had sort of decided to write this book and she thought that it would be a fun way to sort of tell stories of the Chez philosophy and share recipes with kids. And I was like, yeah, okay. I mean, I didn't really have a sense of what the, the extent or reach of that would be. But then here, like so many, so many years later... Uh, Andy Sandberg is like putting Fanny at shape in his like top 10 for, you know, his last, like his quarantine period, what he's done. Cause he's reading it to his daughter. And, and that's it's like, so the, good. <laughs> that's, that's really sweet. Like that, it still has that kind of, um, the long, that longevity. And so Fanny, um, in France was published much more recently. I mean, that was published in the last. I don't know, handful of years. And the idea there was to also, I think with my mom's, especially her activism work with the Edible Schoolyard, was to try and like talk about the foundational things that brought her into a relationship with food that she thinks is the way that we should really educate children and and be present um, and understand correlations to agriculture and production, which is something she really gleaned from spending time in France when she was in her 20s. So it was a way for her to continue talking about these really salient issues right now. Um, as a kid though, I mean, as an old, much older adult, I was like, do you have to do another book? Do you have to? And then I was like, Oh, fine. You know, whatever, of course it's, but there was this period, you know, after the book, the first book was published and then it sort of had its initial lifespan. And then I was in high school when, um, someone adapted it for a Broadway play and that was a different kettle of fish. I was like, wishing death upon that play. I mean, like, I was really, like, just hoping it wouldn't be good enough to, like, go anywhere beyond a more local theater in San Francisco. And, like, I mean, no offense to the lovely people who produced it, but it was just a relief to me that it was not something that ended up going particularly far because I just, you know, as a teenager, I was much more sensitive to the strangeness of having your life kind of paraded um, out like that. And then I, you know, I met for college, and afterwards I traveled back east and then to England, and I lived in England for 11 years, so... And I was really doing nothing to do with food. I mean, I was doing a PhD in art history, and it wasn't, you know, that I was rejecting food. I just wasn't choosing a career in food in a very direct way. I was continuing, of course, to always cook for people and have people over. And, you know, as the aforementioned fire alarm incident, forcing people out of their beds because I was cooking. But, um, but I was choosing a different route um, and very intentionally. And I think that's what allowed me to come back and then look at this relationship. Um, that I have with my mother and with food and with the restaurant and do it in an intimate way without it feeling like it was getting away from me, feeling like I was doing it on my own terms.
2: Your choice of the title Always Home had nothing to do with an impending pandemic. It's, it's. I mean, the timing is, is rather ironic given it's that insane. we're always home now.
0: <laughs> I mean, as far as releases, book releases in the middle of a pandemic go, like I probably it hit the jackpot. It was like, I couldn't have chosen a more ridiculous title. So I think some people were just buying it because of how sort of over-the-top, you know, like almost tongue-in-cheek it seemed. Um, And because you could take a photo of the cover and be like... This, like this author hit the nail on the head with this one. Um, so being always home and being back at my mom's house, especially because I came here early on in the pandemic to be with her and help her. I mean, we obviously we still don't know very much about this pandemic or this virus, but at the time it seemed really urgent to try and make sure that she was getting help and not doing going out and doing things herself and then had the added bonus of, you know, we were able to to do a bunch of events together and we started making these little cooking videos, which we both love doing and which are very, my friend Matt edits and they're just really, you know, exactly like actually a reflection of our relationship, which is great. So it's ended up being kind of serendipitous. I'm, you know, it felt completely insane to be here instead of on book tour as, as planned, but at the same time, it was um, not the worst outcome, I suppose. Your book is a memoir,
2: but in many ways, it is also a love letter to your mother, one of the most important chefs and food activists of our time. Uh, What made you decide to write this particular book?
0: You know, I just... I think I honestly felt like it was the book that had to be written before I could write anything else. You know, I on the one hand, I'm aware, of course, that there is appetite for stories about my mother and a more intimate understanding of who she is. And, you know, her own autobiography sold very well. And as did, I think, the biography that was written about her. I mean, people have are inquisitive and interested in what it is that's made her her. But I think for me it wasn't so much about satisfying that curiosity as it was a way for me to really look profoundly at this relationship that matters so much to me I mean it is the most important relationship in my life you know I don't have kids yet and I you know it's hard for me to consider being close in this way to anyone else you know and I and yet at the same time it was a difficult thing to navigate as a young adult and as someone who is trying to develop uh, her set of interests um, independently from this very magnetic uh, and very beloved person so it 's kind of a way I think for me a, to almost um, like diagnose and treat something and then just like put it oh, put it somewhere um, consolidate it and and then say, like, all right, I've done that. Like, what's, what's the next thing? Which is not to say that there won't be other food-related things or that there won't be other projects with my mother. I mean, it would be really fun, I think, actually, to do some kind of television show together, especially in light of our, like, discovering our, um, what we thought at the beginning would not be comic but is rather, like, a sort of buddy comedy, like, cooking experience. But at the same time, it feels like it gives me some freedom to do whatever that next thing is. For people that want to
2: see the little films that you're making with your mom, where would they go to look at them?
0: They are on both my mom's and my Instagram feeds in their little IGTV videos. We've got another one coming up. BLTs will be out any any day now.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, They're very funny. They're wonderful. Fanny, yours was not a childhood in which sugar reigned supreme. But in Always Home, you recant a memory that you, I think, alluded to uh, a little while ago of when you first tasted ice cream. And I'm wondering if you could share that memory from your book with us now in this short excerpt.
0: Sure, yes. So this is—I'm in Italy, just to set the scene. I think we're somewhere outside of Siena, and it was after my parents' wedding. Um, I was already alive at that point. I uh, attended that wedding, and then we went to Italy together. So, when I received the golden waffle cone in hand, with just a modest ball slotted into it, I knew intuitively to apply it to my mouth. The smell was seductive, but muted by the cold. The taste, on the other hand, was intoxicating— The sugar used in that gelato produced a flavor that was completely indistinct from that of the fruit it was meant to intensify, which is to say it was exactly the right amount of sugar, neither too much nor too little. It had a platonic taste of strawberry, of the ripest honeyed late summer berries so perfectly distilled that the taste seemed almost audible. It could not be confined to the realm of the tongue. So much so that I forgot that my mouth was in fact the best place to receive this newfound new manna. I began to use the cone like a melting frozen marker to draw over the whole of my face. I wanted to merge with this food, not just to eat it, but to experience it. My clothes, my hair, all were victims of the brief but unforgettable encounter. I don't remember anything else about that day, and indeed very little if anything about that trip to Italy, but I know that my memory of my communion with the gods of sugar and ice cream is first-hand and real, not merely something told to me or photographed. It is etched onto my palate alongside the most indelible of my life's food memories. I don't think my parents took a photo, nor did they try to stop me from selling every inch of my dress. They just looked at I looked on at what happens in the moment that marks the end of two years of living on the planet ignorant of ice cream. And even though my parents returned to the sugar-free regime and adhered to it with lamentable rigor, I think they were both pleased to watch me fleetingly lose my mind and flavor.
2: It's such a it's such a wonderful excerpt Fanny and and so evocative. I I can just see you with this little hand and this little cone and just trying to consume it from every possible pore in your body. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah. Um, yes. You you write so um beautifully about how you were brought up with food and around food. And you've written about how you don't think you were ever once told to use your knife and fork and go on to share how on, 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 it may have been the same trip to Italy, I don't know, where pizza is consumed with a fork and a knife. You were regarded as a feral child brought up by a pair of pitiful Americans. Um, and,
0: And I also wanted to ask, is it true that you like to toss salad with your hands? I do. It's been one of like the greatest tragedies of this pandemic <laughs> is that you get like, if you're cooking for any more than just yourself, you have to use tongs or salad spoons or salad servers or whatever. And that's, I I just, uh, you know, Tamara Adler actually, we, the two of us were talking about this early on in the pandemic, like you have to toss salad with your hands. Like you feel how much dressing is on there and like whether it needs to be, whether you need more or whether you need more lettuce to help extend the dressing if it's overdressed. And, and then it allows you to just quickly like taste a leaf and make sure it has the right amount of acid or enough salt or, you know, these things that we used to do with a great ease and especially I think restaurant cooks are, are very familiar with that but the home cook I think should be emboldened to toss salads with their hands I mean it just it really acquaints you with what your dish needs and it helps you feel I think more intuitive about what the problems or the corrections that need to be made but yeah it's been a very tongue-filled last few months sadly.
2: I have been somebody, for whatever reason, and I don't know why, I've always um, borrowed food from other people's plates, or maybe (laughs) the better word is stolen. Um, And I've been doing this for as long as I can remember. I see something on somebody's plate, maybe they're not eating it fast enough, or they don't seem to want any more of it, and I'll... I'll just take it off somebody's plate. And I read years ago that when you do that, you're really showing how affectionate you are with somebody Mm -hmm. because I guess of the intimacy. Um, So whenever anybody complains about my doing it, I just remind them that this is actually a sign of true love and intimacy. And Uh, you should just allow me to take it as is, (laughs) as much as I want.
0: (laughs) And you'd make very good bedfellows with my mother who's always trying to proffer things from her plate to the mouths of others. So you guys would be snug as a bug in a rug there with that behavior but she's i think there is something very generous about the the take and the give you know that you that there isn't like you know, first of all, like everything on my plate is mine. You know, I've always bristled at a date who's like, I'm ordering my dish, you're ordering your dish and we're not going to share. I'm like, what? Like, what's the point? Like I want, first of all, to taste as many things as I, as I can, when I go to a restaurant, I'm interested in, you know, not just what might immediately appeal to me, but maybe another 10 dishes on the menu. I'm like, well, see, I like to take
2: Food from other people's dishes, but I don't like it when they take from mine. Oh, so I guess that's a one way street. It's a one way street. <laughs> <a one-way> street. <laughs> I only want I to see, take. Daddy. I don't want to give. I, see. <laughs> I have a lot of food jealousy, I have to admit. I see something on somebody's plate and I want to try it too. But generally speaking, I like to eat everything on my plate. So I don't <laughs> want to share. <laughs> oh, well, I guess mm. I'll talk about that with my therapist. Um, <laughs> you. I know you and your mom share some interesting kitchen characteristics as evidenced by your your wonderful videos, um, but also some significant differences. And you've written about how anything requiring patience or exacting methodology or just about anything whatsoever that needs to be measured was bound to be foiled by what you refer to as her hummingbird attention span. And you're the same way. You cook with high heat, very fast, always with intense amounts of flavor and zero measuring. Um, you have no interest in following recipes and generally exhibit what you've said or you described as a brazen ignorance of their wisdom when it comes to baking. So I was wondering if you can talk a bit about what happened during your first week of cooking in Chez Panisse, as a teenager making both gingerbread cake and custard.
0: Oh yeah, that was, that was a dark period. I was, I was about (laughs) 15, I think. Um, and I was kind of cycling through different departments in the restaurant doing these like mini stages. And, um, I was in the pastry department for, I mean, a scant few days because in the first like day and a half, I managed to put 50% Too many eggs into a custard. And I mean 50%. (laughs) That is a a a lot lot too many. That's a lot of eggs. (laughs) it just basically came out like it came out the consistency of like a coddled egg. I mean, it was just eggs, basically. And um and then the other thing I did was omit the molasses from a gingerbread cake. And I was just, I mean, it was kind of a head shaking. Like, we're so sorry, but she's (laughs) just gotta go. I was, I was expelled, you know, which is a, a hard thing to imagine. Like telling your bosses, your boss, that their daughter is like too incompetent for your, for your department, just, and worried perhaps about some recrimination. But my mom was like, Oh, I, I, I suspected that might be the case. I think I just didn't have the mathematics or the just, uh, reflexes for ba- baking that is required to do it well. Um, but yeah, I was I very happy either. to go back to salad. That was my my very happy home. So back in the salad station within the week. Now, because
2: you've written a book that includes recipes and your mom has written a number of books about you that include recipes, I'm wondering how you feel about following either your mom's recipes or your original recipes, or are you continually improvising?
0: Um, I really love recipes. Like even though I say that I'm I like brazen ignorance of their wisdom with baking, which is like, it's, that's, you know, sort of half true. Like I will always read through, and especially if I'm trying to bake something, it's mainly like, I just have a hard time following those instructions when like adding things at the right time, because I am a very intuitive cook. So it's, I love reading the recipe, the savory recipes of a number of fabulous cooks, mainly for to be inspired around flavor combinations and to think about ingredients in different ways and, and certain preparations that do require methods that are unfamiliar to me. But I always, there's always a part of me that's like five basil leaves, like 15, like a huge bunch, come on. Like, and I have enough knowledge of cooking to know that that actually will be good. You know, so it's like, there's always a sense of elasticity around a recipe, which is why my recipes are so open because i know that people have tastes that are, will differ from mine and there's this there's not a strong sense of like if you don't do this exactly like four garlic what does four garlic cloves mean anyway like one garlic some garlic cloves are this big some are you know the size of thumbnails some are the size of your fist like you can't really trust that anyway, when you're, when it's not a question of exact teaspoons and things. So, you I know, mean, I love the cooks like David Tannis who are always so elastic about, you know, tasting and tweaking and trying new, just, it feels like an experimentation in a, in a way, but guided by someone very knowledgeable. So, I mean, I feel that shape and recipes are like that too. And, and especially with my mom's books, they're all being tested so much coming through the restaurant, being tried and true dishes that have been served there for years or, through the edible schoolyard or through her kitchen. So I feel like you can trust their wisdom for sure. And then also just trust yourself to embroider. One of your biggest differences is your opinions
2: on the contents of a refrigerator. Uh, She prefers a nearly empty fridge containing only what she'll need for a specific meal with rarely for more per person than what she can imagine eating herself while well, you prefer an abundantly stocked fridge and tend to buy enough food for each guest to be able to eat at least seconds i'm definitely more in that camp myself um now that different behavior how is that manifesting now where you're sharing a home again after not for decades
0: yeah, it's a strain on our relationship. <laughs> my mom—the Water and her,
2: Singers like, Wars. It, well, it really
0: is because I feel like I inherit my, you know, my relationship to food and to the aforementioned stocked refrigerator. It's really—I always joke that it's like this post-war American Jewish like need for abundance. You know, it's like my grand—my grandmother had. At no fewer than like eight massive Tupperware containers containing like rugala, brownies, uh, all her little like cookies that she would make and they go into the freezer. And if ever there were need to defrost these like extremely sweetened treats, I, you know, they would come out of their freezer. There's always an excess of that kind of stuff. And my dad's refrigerator is like, you know, is chaos is predict, predictable chaos. I would just imagine it's filled with wine. <laughs> there's so much, I mean, the, uh, what is, oh, uh, Dipsomaniac is what he calls himself, which is like a lover of, of alcohol, I think. And there's, the, there's a just landscape in the kitchen that's all of the various liqueurs and like other after dinner drinks and booze. And it's, the most expansive bar you could ever imagine seeing. it truly makes him look like he has a problem, but there are multiple wine fridges and wine storage areas around too, but he's a great cook and lover of food also. So that, you know, it's cut, get it from both sides of the family. My mom's though, like Spartan tendencies, yeah. It didn't chime with, I mean, I was freaking out at the beginning of this pandemic. So I was like, we need to have like lots of frozen meats and like prepared pestos. And I'm like processing greens. And I was doing that at my apartment in the city before, you know, I came over here to my mom's and my mom just, I think had this notion that like, we're going to be fine. We'll still get the vegetable box from shape nice once a week. And now, yeah, there's still a push pull. I mean, I realized that the extreme level of anxiety over provisioning was um, unnecessary. So we didn't need to like be stocking up for nuclear warfare, but we still have this kind of, my mom's like, that's too many bottles up there. Like, why did you get another jam? Or like, I I ordered some, (laughs) I ordered some food. Never enough jam. We have, she's annexed all of my Japanese ingredients to a bag in her closet. Cause she's just like, it's too <gasps> many, it's too much stuff for the kitchen. Oh, so that's we have, not fair. you know, it's a little bit of a push pull, but I, you know, on the whole, decently harmonious so
2: one of the things that that i love to do
0: is when i don't
2: know somebody if i'm just i live in manhattan most of the time i'm not right now i'm in california with my wife but um usually i love to walk around manhattan and look in people's windows you know just to imagine what their lives are like but when i know someone i love to look in their refrigerator to see what the way they live and so if i were to pop into your house right now what would be in your fridge what would i find
0: so my mom has this wonderful, very charming way of uh, keeping any like leftovers or anything that's been opened that can be decanted into these cafe au lait bowls. And then she puts a little dish on top so we don't have any Tupperware. There's no more traditional containers or bags or any plastic wrap or foil in this house, generally. So every there's all these little stacks, but it requires like, you really have to dedicate yourself to the search. You're like, okay, where's the fucking feta cheese? You know, and you're like under this plate, <laughs> like under this plate, under this plate, you know, you really have to do a little search to find these things, but it is a kind of charming landscape. There's definitely some beautiful, you know, Meyer lemons that are preserved. Some I have these, I did, was doing a lot of preserving at the beginning at this, just out of sort of interest curiosity and boredom you know nice so one of the things that we have in there are these like little persian um pickled plums that are you get the green mm-hmm. plums and then you salt pickle them in a brine and the flavor's amazing they start tasting they taste like nothing when you eat them green. I mean, really sour. And then when you pickle them, they just start to taste like floral almond of flavor. And those can go, they can get eaten kind of alongside cheese and herbs and flatbreads, but they also are great in stews and things like that. So there's that kind of stuff lurking in the back. And then there's always uh, at least three bottles of Domain Tempier Rosé that my mom will like reliably dispatch over the course of a few days. And then, yeah, still like a a village of jars of jams and things like that, that seem to never be dislodged. And then as much salad as we can fit in there at any given time. And then she always washes it methodically. Like it's really a kind of ritualistic thing that I think helps to calm her nerves. And so she'll pick lettuce. My mom, really expanded our victory garden situation in berkeley uh during the pandemic so she ripped up what was not really it was not at all edible landscape in the front garden and planted a lot of salad and cucumbers and squash out there so that people could also see that she was growing food in the garden and so we've had a nice like at least enough salad for the two of us which is the one thing both of us need in abundance and so there's usually a towel that is rolled around uh, a layer of lettuce and then in a bag so that it stays fresh.
2: Sounds wonderful.
0: And some other less savory things but I'm going to spare you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay.
2: (laughs) Fanny, for your 18th birthday, a month before you headed off to Yale University, your family gave you a handmade book called Fanny's Exclusive College Survival Cookbook. And you write this, you write about it so wonderfully in your memoir. Um, This book was a collection of more than 55 recipes from virtually every dear family friend in your life. Some of your favorites were Calvin Trillin's scrambled eggs that stick to the pan every time, Sue Murphy's recipe for a perfect back scratch, and David King's wake-up snack. So I was wondering if you could describe for us two of them, if you can describe Calvin Trillin's sticky scrambled eggs and and why they were so sticky, and the recipe for David King's wake-up snack, which is the strangest snack for waking up I've ever read about.
0: I thought I might have it nearby so I could read you Calvin's like wonderful recipe verbatim. But he talks about how um he's like <laughs> make sure like as you like pat around for the little bit of butter in the back of the fridge like discuss riboflavin content of various cereals with daughters (laughs) like while discussing riboflavin content of various cereals burn like toast in the adjacent toaster like and then like by serve with a wan smile I think is what the final line is um calvin and who's known as bud uh to his friends and and family and to me bud is still someone who's one of my closest the closest people in my life and um and so now it's actually it's when i go i usually stay with it when i go to new york i usually stay with him and uh, prepare him definitely not burnt uh scrambled eggs he's always happy to have me come make some kind of frittata or something um but that's really one of the great recipes in there. And then David King's, uh, you know, I was heading off to my freshman year of college. So even though David and his wife, Nilafer Ichaporia King has written one of the, my favorite cookbooks, it's called, um, my Bombay kitchen. And it's really one of like, just the I wrote a chapter about Nilifer in, in my book because she's yes. such a huge influence on my on the way I think about food and flavor. Um, but David is her husband and he's actually a wonderful cook, but instead of giving me a recipe, and Nilifer had contributed a, a beautiful recipe to the book, he just gives me this disgusting <laughs> snack, snack in quotes of like coffee, instant coffee mixed with tap water from like the dorm bathroom eaten with a spoon chased by more top water which was he said guaranteed to keep you up all night for those all of those you know college freshmen all-nighters that you'll need but you'd be in the bathroom oh yeah <laughs> definitely oh.
2: I so couldn't even gross. imagine you doing that. Did you ever consume no. it? No. Okay. I mean, <laughs> I stayed, I
0: stayed awake plenty of nights all night, you know, as one does when one is 18, but to write a terrible philosophy paper or whatever, but, um, then no, definitely never went the instant coffee paste route still the, still, I love that recipe. I love that it's in there. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what you studied
2: at Yale. You graduated with a degree in fine art and the history of art. What were you hoping to do professionally at that point?
0: Fabulous question for anyone in the humanities who likes to do anything that's emphatically untethered to any kind of concrete profession. But... Um, yeah, I was, you know, I studied art when I was, uh, or not studied, but I was really into making art when I was a teenager and had this creative streak. So I think I actually really wanted to go to art school. And then it was, um, my parents were interested in me studying art at a more, um, traditional four-year college instead of just going directly into a BFA, which I was thankful for because actually I've had a real interest in academics. It wasn't for a lack of that I was interested in art. So it was kind of a way of doing both. And it was, yeah, I mean, Yale has an amazing art program and fine art program, especially at the graduate level. So there were lots of really extraordinary professors who taught undergrad as well. And I don't know that I, I don't think I ever thought I was going to be a practicing artist, but the skills that I honed there as a printmaker, especially I did work both one summer at a printing press, an Intaglio printing press in Berkeley. And then um, again, after college, I worked at Pace Editions, which is one of the really great fine art printing presses in New York. And I loved doing that actually. I mean, it's like completely manual labor and, There are certain kind of conceptual decisions or decisions that are mostly based on technique that you can help steer an artist into if they, because usually an artist comes to work in a press without any knowledge of the medium. So it's about figuring out how to reify some kind of design intent or idea, and then collaborating on that to figure out how it comes to life in the form of a two-dimensional printed artwork. And I loved that kind of problem solving and also just like loved the kind of manual labor of it. I never found it like redundant or tedious and may have actually ended up doing that if I hadn't, you know, at the time been dating a Uh, much more academically inclined, um, young man named Tom Schmidt, who was a classicist. And he got a, he, he was still at Yale when I was in New York that first year after college. And he, um, got this fellowship to go to Cambridge. And so I applied like just to be able to go to England. I didn't even think I was going to end up necessarily pursuing a much longer, um, degree and actually in a kind of reversal of what we, of expectation, I ended up staying for a PhD and he ended up going back to the States. So, but I started with art history because, or I started, I continued my studies in art history, but in this more focused way because there wasn't a fine art program at Cambridge. Like I couldn't have even done a more practical art practice there. So I really talk about doing that PhD as like walking backwards into it. It was not something I I had kind of in my sights and was trying to pursue which maybe like you never would do a PhD if you thought you were going to, because it's such a bizarre existential hell. (laughs) So, (laughs) to put it lightly.
2: You ended up going to get your PhD in England, but stayed for over a decade. Mm -hmm. Um, And you've written quite a bit about how you've lived your whole life as Alice Waters' child, the fact of parentage being a kind of epithet for any introduction to you. This is Alice Waters' daughter, Fanny. Um, And you go on to state in the book that even when you were being introduced in that way, which you still are, but are never particularly resentful of, it just reinforced your sense of needing to figure out who you were going to be as an individual beyond the associations with a famous parent. Did being in the UK for that long help you forge your own identity?
0: Absolutely. I mean, going to uh, England was a real way to sever that connection in a very obvious public way, in a sense. I, I never, I mean, I spoke to my mom all the time. It wasn't like I was cutting her out of my life. I just, I was never identified that way in the way that I had been before. Um, I mean, thanks to my mother, Yale planted an incredible farm and started a Yale sustainable food project. And because of that, the food improved massively for me and for many others. And, and it was a gift that she did that, but at the same time it, it did prolong the association between me and her in this way that I never quite felt like, I mean... I, my mom, um, its it makes making her sound like she's been a helicopter parent and she never was. but there was still this umbilical tension that I feel like I needed to get you kind know, of beyond the ken of of that experience and or, or her ken, really, you know, to get into territory and and intellectual waters that were just different. And in a way, kind of inaccessible to her. I mean, my mom's not, she's very, she loves art and she's very aesthetically um, attuned and sensitive and intelligent. But there's just not a huge interest in the more like academic side of it. And, you know, it's like I was doing something that was not intentionally inaccessible exactly, but just kind of inaccessible. And it meant that it created um, for me a real sense of autonomy. It was both like kind of frustrating on the one hand, I'm like, but then also a relief, you know, and so being there. I mean, obviously there were restaurateurs in London who I was who I would get to know who loved my mom and admired her, and um, including like Sally Clark, who's had a restaurant for you know dozens of years, not thirty-five years I think or more, who was one of my mom's cooks at Chez Panisse for years and who's one of her closest friends. So there's definitely a kind of legacy of Chez Panisse, even as far as London, but it just wasn't something that I felt as an oppressive association, not in terms of like, will I ever figure out who I am outside of that identification? And I think I actually did kind of manage. I mean, I just got, you know, I was, I was not, I was cooking food and gathering people, but it was so much on my own terms. No one was comparing it to how my mom might've done it or what the food was like or anything like that. It was just delicious because, it, you know, I cared about it and I was investing time and effort in it. And that was foreign to a lot of my English friends, needless to say. But also I was, you know, writing art reviews and I was carving out a career that was more in that world and vain. And I think actually it's only been since coming back to California that I have felt like these things are so much more integrated in who I am than I thought. Like I'd really created these two quite um, compartmentalized selves. You know, like there was the Alice Waters and the and the food world and like that was one thing. And then there was like me as an art, you know, critic and art writer and someone, you know, it's like I'm still getting commissions from the Friedrichsianum in Germany to write a catalog essay. And I'm at the same time, like, publishing goofy videos of cooking with my mom. And it's like, you can actually, like, contain those things. Multitudes. The multitudes, yeah. You have range. You've got good range. There's range. Whether it's good, the jury's still out, Debbie. (laughs) We'll see. You
2: got your PhD in the history of art. Uh, at Cambridge and wrote your thesis on the British pop artist Richard Hamilton. Uh, You first met Hamilton in 2007. You were 23 and you've been trying to engineer a meeting for months. When you finally did uh, get to meet him, I understand that he sternly questioned your use of the word morph.
0: What what was that about? (laughs) Oh, no, it just, it was great, actually. We, I needed to get image rights from him. He controlled every image of his work that existed. So you couldn't publish something with images if he didn't approve of the text, which is, um, and he was like a pretty truculent, like exacting, captious kind of individual. And, And definitely, like, I mean, he was in his 80s already at that point. And um, I had written this um, article in the first year of my PhD that was going to be published in this academic publication called Print Quarterly. And of course, like, you need the images, otherwise you're referring to these things that no one's ever seen, you know, and you can't search online even, really. And so I, I remember printing out the piece, and I took it to him physically at his house outside of Oxford. And I'd never visited with him before. Or I'd maybe met him once before, but I'd never been to his house. And I just remember sitting in his beautiful atelier. He was very close friends with uh, Marcel Duchamp. And there were all of these replicas that were sanctioned by Duchamp that they'd collaborated on of different pieces of the large glass, which is one of Duchamp's most famous sculptures. And just being surrounded by all these extraordinary artworks and sitting and just waiting for him to read. This essay in front of me, and like possibly hate it. And he was sitting there with a pen in hand, and I could see him just like occasionally circling a word or some little check and he very very kindly wrote 10 out of 10 on the bottom you know as if he was grading the paper (laughs) but he yeah he took issue with this this one word because i think you know i was writing about this late work that he was um this period that was well beyond his association with the pop movement um he started to work with a computer to make a lot of works from the late 80s onward And started getting really interested in computer technologies as early as the seventies and even built his own computers and learned a version of Unix and would write code and kept his entire art catalog, like his archive in code and stuff. Like it was elaborate. And I think the word morphed was for him, it meant something very specific for computer technologies. And he just it was like he wanted it to be a different it was just being so exacting about language and what those, the meaning of that word meant in the context of something that actually involved, um, a computer technology that did morph. <laughs> He's like, that's not the right word for this, but I got off like relatively easy given what a hard time he would sometimes give to other writers. So I had a really nice relationship with him up until he passed away just a year before I submitted my PhD. So I benefited from many visits and interviews and getting to work with him closely. Over
2: the years, you've worked as the Bay Area restaurant critic for Gourmet Magazine. You've been a contributing editor at the Wall Street Journal, writing on arts and culture. You've written and or illustrated pieces in Pop, Lucky Peach, Cherry Bomb, And in an article on Art Papers several years ago, you stated, with the subject of food gaining increasing traction within artistic communities, it's tempting to attribute the recent flurry of convivial projects to a prevailing cultural condition of digital dependency. And Mm. I'm wondering what you think now of the food culture that has emerged on social sites and Mm ways in which we share what we're eating and how we're eating and how we're cooking what we're eating.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's a very interesting time for that. You know, I, I wrote in a more recent piece on um, for Freeze Magazine about kind of the spectacularization of food um, and how yes. it's and there have been artists and someone like Leila Gohar, who makes these like beautiful food installations, and she's a good friend. She makes beautiful and delicious food. I mean, she's an interesting example of someone who's almost kind of Dolly-esque in the artistic scope of what she does. But she has a very like earthy palette and love of like artisanal kind of just beans and bread and and I that I can really get down with and then there's this strange other world of Instagram of like people slamming their faces into bread or whatever and that becomes the bread face blog I think is what that's called or you know I mean it's a strange and very very variegated world now and I mean people of course in the more like quotidian end of things are just daily posting photos of what they're eating which I am also someone who succumbs to that uh, tendency or that impulse But I do think that there's something, it can kind of be good and bad. You know, I think there's inspiration to be had from it that I think encourages you to do something yourself, you know? So it's like seeing the way that people are gathering or, you know, virtually is also sometimes I think a kind of call to action and like, oh, that looked beautiful. Like, let's have a picnic with friends. And I think that happens. I, I mean, I get lots of comments when I post something like an interesting preparation of, grilling peaches on fig leaves the other day. And so many people are like, I'm going to do that tonight, you know, and a feeling of there being a real sense of reciprocity and realness to that, that something can really inspire someone to do something else um, in that vein um, that is a real connection. But I do think like the way that digital culture has really atomized and compartmentalized us has had this really deleterious effect on on how we gather and and we just think we are with people because we're with them virtually and I mean right now we have to be there's no other option. But um, I'm always, I mean, it's been part of why I've been so depressed in this time is I'm used to cooking for people like three or four times a week. And to not have that feeling, I mean, of just proximity to people and sharing, tasting in real time, the same thing. And, you know, for me, cooking is really about cooking for others. I'm not just someone who likes to experiment madly on my own, you know, in pursuit of some flavor or something. I really like to give uh, to others. So it's been, yeah, that's been a very alienating aspect of this. And I think it's also potentially something that's just, or rather, it's been happening in culture more broadly as a trend. I hope that this actually coming out of this people feel really drive to gather and cook together and be together in a real physical way. I loved what um, Gloria Steinem said when she was at the City Arts and Lectures this last like, God, like 100 years ago now, just sometime pre-pandemic. She was out here in San Francisco and she was talking about why she decided ultimately to, to be more of an activist and a speaker than a writer. Um, she just, she was like, I just felt like the important thing was that people, human bodies were together, you know, when we're together and we're physically gathered, we feel something, we have a real chemical response, like oxytocin increases and our serotonin levels increase. And we actually have a, we have a real physical response to the to the proximity of bodies. Like it's that simple. It's just the chemistry of togetherness and that brings us happiness. And I think, you know, you add a beautiful meal to that and you have yet an, an, even an amplification of that sense of of fulfillment, which is really just an animal sense of comfort and, and, um, and care and care, which is why, Also, there's a chapter in the book, you know, called Beauty is a Language of Care, which is really about that too, which is making a a meal for someone, making a beautiful environment for them is also a way of communicating to them that they're cared for and loved, which is the like foundational ethos of the edible schoolyard. In
2: 2016, you and your college friend, Mariah Nielsen, launched Permanent
0: Collection. Can you describe what Permanent Collection is and what made you decide to start it? So yeah, so Mariah actually, I crazily didn't meet her until I was in England and we were at different universities. So she was getting her master's at the Royal College and I was getting my PhD at Cambridge, but we met through a mutual friend from California and we were just magnetically drawn to each other. I think there was a real sense of sorority instantly. I mean, I look she's a beautiful creature and she's like always impeccably dressed and she was wearing this coat that i wanted to like bludge in her and take off her like shoulders immediately and it was some vintage piece that was perfect and and that actually in a weird way was sort of the kernel of the collection because it did start with a big um, emphasis on not just objects and design pieces which we make now but also quite a bit of clothing but I think both of us, you know, she'd studied design history and was doing art history, and her father was this very well-known sculptor in California named J.B. Blunk. And um, she'd spent her career sort of, or her later career, really shoring up his legacy and taking care of the estate and helping to secure, you know, shows and exhibitions around the world for that work, and actually just made a beautiful monograph of, of J.B. Blunk's work. And I think you know, kind of both having these parents who were very important um, influences on us um, in terms of the aesthetic of our environments, I mean she grew up in a hand built house that her father had made in Inverness in the wilderness, and every single thing in the house was made by hand, from the ceramics to the light poles to everything and so Maria and I had i think there was a there was a shared genetics, I think in terms of what we felt like we'd been educated in from a very young age, you know just there was nothing was disposable, but at the same time, nothing was precious. It was like beauty was just something that was a kind of atmosphere really. And it was totally um, unpretentious kind of beauty, but just a care around selecting like a few beautiful branches of bay, you know, when you're out on a walk and arranging them in a, wooden vessel that her father had made or simple things that my mom would do too, you know, just grab rummaging around and picking some flowers and arranging them simply and from the garden and um, never having kind of disposable stuff around and also just using the things that she loved and had collected. So the idea of permanent collection was to make things like that, you know, to identify really essential pieces in the kitchen and the home and maybe in the wardrobe and and even accessories like her we work with her father's estate to make some of his beautiful historical jewelry designs but things that were, that had historical significance, we worked with the Alexander Calder estate to make um, two of his designs into two beautiful silk, silk scarves. But increasingly stuff, especially with the pandemic, because everyone's at home, increasingly things for the kitchen and home. And a lot of those are influenced by my mom's kitchen. So the things that she uses the most, and I'm sure you'll ask me about the egg spoon. Which yeah, is <laughs>
2: my next question. You know,
3: yeah.
2: <laughs> That was one of your first items. So I was one of the first people that bought the egg spoon in 2016. Um, (laughs) I actually, I thought you'd love this. Um, I actually took it with me camping.
0: Yeah, (laughs) I love that. I need
2: pictures, it Because I was so excited. (laughs) Oh, this was back in 2016 when I first got it. Um, I love it so much. And I very intentionally... Um, when I was I, I bought a house and, and very intentionally had one of the fireplaces cleared out and made beautiful so that I could use the egg spoon in my I love house. it.
0: I love the egg spoon before it's like the egg spoon before the fireplace. It's like the new yeah. chicken or egg yeah. dilemma. Yeah. So
2: so for, for the listeners that might not be familiar with this famous egg spoon, talk about
0: if you could talk about the origin of the egg spoon. Of course, yeah. I will note that it is like to date our best selling product by such an extraordinary margin. It's kind of amazing. It really like it hits some kind of vein, you know, it's like there was something very resonant and the people who buy it send us endless emails about how much they love it. Anyways, it's this iron forged iron, long handled, sort of shallow cupped, um, spoon that's intended for frying an egg in a fireplace, and um, this was a tool that my mom became aware of because she was reading this wonderful book by William Rubel called *The Magic of Fire*, and my mom is really a like deft cook with fireplace cooking. I mean, she's just has an unbelievable knowledge of, of fire cooking. And I mean, uncanny really, it's like, she's much more comfortable there than she is in front of the stove. And so this really appealed to her when she saw this illustration, because of course there's no photograph of this thing. It's a 17th century French culinary antique. And it was meant for precisely that purpose. What I imagine when I think about why it would have been developed even in like 17th century France is because there are those huge, huge fireplaces in the kitchens that would have been going 24 hours a day and so you wouldn't have to necessarily start a fire in this in the iron stoves which would have also been used in the 17th century which you could just for breakfast you could just put a, a spoon over the flame in these larger hearts and like make a perfect egg so my mom asked a friend of ours who's um a wonderful sicilian blacksmith named angelo garo um who well, actually mainly now does omnivore salt like he doesn't i don't know if he's doing much smithing but at the time this is like the early mid 90s um if he she asked him to make this egg spoon and he made this egg spoon that became you know, a beloved piece in our kitchen and a thing that featured in like a 60 minutes episode of my mom's. And so when we like many, many years later, when we, um, were starting permanent collection and thinking about what kitchen items to add, even though it wouldn't, you wouldn't think it's the most like basic and intuitive thing to like, you know, cornerstone of the kitchen. We were like, maybe we should do that. I mean, it just doesn't exist anywhere. And it's such a special implement and it really makes a great egg. And my mom was like, Yeah, definitely you should you should definitely make that. And so we actually work with this wonderful female blacksmith named Sean Lovell, who is located in Alameda, not too far from here. And she kind of tweaked the design a bit actually because it needed to be more of a round cup. The Angela's was a little bit more oval, which just made holding the egg in the cup a little harder. And so this really like I mean, it's actually like cooking the egg and spoon for dummies. It's like quite easy to use. <laughs> like, and Sean made these beautiful spoons that she hand forges and, It turned out to be this implement that, of course, you know, also comes charged with all kinds of conversations around my mom's cook. You know, Anthony Bourdain loved to call her kind of precious because she was using this egg spoon to cook an egg, even though it was like in a fire pit, which couldn't seem less precious to me. But then this New York Times article came out that sort of established it as this almost like Me Too moment, like, gender division lightning rod um and then the egg spoon was featured prominently and then we saw like a thousand egg spoons i mean sean was making egg spoons for like six solid months like bless her i mean such a crazy crazy episode but it remains something that we'll keep in the collection sort of ad infinitum and it's it's a special thing for sure
2: yeah if if anything happened in my house and I had to leave immediately, it would be one of the things <laughs> that I grabbed to see, you know, I'm gonna like quote you and me. put you on our website, Well. Be- <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, happily.
0: Love that.
3: happily, I happily. Love
2: that. Fanny, I only have a few last questions for you. Sure. Um, when the when the pandemic first started, you left San Francisco and as we've discussed, moved in with your mom in Berkeley. Um, are are
0: bell peppers and broccoli still frowned upon in the Waters <sighs> Singer household? <laughs> Um, they're definitely not ingredients that find their way into our fridge very often. I can't like remember the last time I saw either. Although I love, I mean, I love broccoli and peppers. If you roast a a bell pepper, my mom will eat it. I mean, she loves roasted peppers and actually roasting peppers in general is one of the most beautiful fragrances that you can concoct in your kitchen. Um, But but why the ban on broccoli? There was something about these. I think because they'd been so badly prepared through the fifties, you know, the forties and fifties, my mom's childhood, those were like vegetables that were readily around and they were just, you know, it was like chunks of bell pepper and a salad and it was broccoli just steamed or cooked beyond, you know, until it had that kind of, um, mushy. sulfurous, you know, sulfurous aroma and like mushy texture. My mom loves like broccoli rub and broccolini and the kinds of things that have a little bit more of it sort of flavor edge to them. I mean, I think too, what happened is with those American versions of them got sort of like bred the flavor out of them. I mean, they're not particularly interesting vegetables compared to their older and more wild counterparts, which is why like broccoli rabe is one of the favorite things in this house. Like when that's in season, there's bags and bags of it. But I do love, I do love roasted broccoli and I I make it for myself, but it just doesn't crop up too much in Berkeley at my mom's house anyway. And my last question for you today is this. Um, I
2: understand that every evening you are walking the neighborhood uh, around you and you're searching for the 137 paths that reportedly thread through the hills of Berkeley and you're determined to find and travel them all. What number are you up to?
0: I think I've walked at least, I haven't been keeping an exact tally because one will suddenly like come out of nowhere and you're like, oh, I, and I don't, I don't walk with anything, but I think I've probably gotten up to like the eighties for sure. Wow. I just, I've stayed mostly in North Berkeley. I, you know, and, and so I'm not wandering, I'm definitely not hitting more of the South Berkeley paths that I'm sure exist, but I really discovered places and, and corners and little like a total wilderness is in the middle of this, of this city. I just, I, that I'd never seen before. I mean, like a pair of chairs in the middle of what looks like this beautiful s- sward on the side of a, of a hillside that overlooks uh, the entirety of the Bay or like little, there's all this rock, um, I want to say it's a kind of granite, which apparently is a hunt over a hundred million years old. And it's, that it comes up and like, is just, there's one called Indian rock nearby. And then there are other rock parks that are smaller, but then they're also just between two houses. There'll be a chunk of rock that I'd never seen before. And there'll just be little stairs that you can walk up and sit on the top of it and perch and look, look out over the bay. And it's, there's, some unbelievable sort of mystery and magic to this town. I, I, that I never, never knew. And that's, what's like kind of astounding to me as I lived on this planet, you know, 36 years ignorant of these many beautiful paths What I have been very assiduously marking down have actually been all of the fruit trees that are easily accessible. Um, (laughs) And my friend Amelia and I have one designation in particular, which is called fair use fig, which is any fig tree that's like definitely not in someone's yard or it's like overhanging their yard enough that it's a fair use fig as opposed to just an off limits fig. And definitely any, uh, figs that are in, in between the sidewalk and the road that are planted in that, those are like totally fair yeast figs. Absolutely. We've got fair yeast figs. We've got the overproductive Meyer lemon trees, you know, the, the lions, the low quads, the plums. Um, we thought we were past plum season and then we were walking the night before last and we hit a plum and we didn't even like communicate that we were going to stop. We just, the, me and my friend Alex and Amelia, we were just standing there just eating plums, like talking about depression and just like raving. <laughs> this plum tree it was like it's so it's such a magical thing to have that kind of relationship to well nature and still being in the city but also to have this kind of uh, free food while you're walking so we which has also led of course to the aforementioned various preservation projects
2: Well, thank you so, so much for joining me on today's episode. Thank you so much for writing this really beautiful, beautiful book. And also thank you for the recipe of the strawberry gelato. We're making it tonight. Oh, good. I'll (laughs) let you know how it comes out. (laughs) Fanny Singer's latest book is titled Always Home, A Daughter's Recipes and Stories. You can read more about her at permanentcollection.com and you can see her absolutely marvelous videos on her Instagram, Fanny Singer. This is the 16th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
3: Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded in non-pandemic times at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland.
1: You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down.